Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Hey, I hope y'all are doing well today. Um, my name's Chris. I'm one of the house church leaders here, and um, I'm going to be doing the scripture reading today. <laughs> I love that encouragement. Thank you. <laughs> but I'm just going to hop in. We're in Luke 10 today, verse 38 through 43. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by herself? By myself. (laughs) Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Only indeed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. If I have not met you before, my name is Spencer, and I have the honor and privilege to uh, be a pastor here at United City. And it's our heart and our desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. We believe that God is actively on the move in the world. He is bringing about regeneration and renewal and rebirth in our society and in our time and moment. Last week, in our first public gathering in over 500 days, we attempted to do two things for all of us. The first thing is examine at a macro view, our human longing for Eden. The propensity that we have as humans to long and yearn for human flourishing, for peace, for wholeness, and harmony. The second thing that we did was set the stage for the why behind our brand new communal rhythm of life. I mentioned that last week wasn't so much a vision day as it was the beginning of the genesis of our vision series for the new chapter that we're moving into in the life of our community. I think we're stepping into a time in history within the church where we're kind of moving away from the legacy model of membership and stepping into the ancient practice of rule of life and rhythm of life as a community. And I'm really, really excited about it. So we did those two things last week. If you missed the talk, if you missed the teaching, you can go back and listen on YouTube or on podcast or on Spotify, uh, whatever platform of your choice. We have come to the conclusion as a community that Jesus invites us to adopt a brand new way of life by practicing his teachings, all the while being with him which is the greatest aspect of this invitation, is to be with our rabbi. It is when we adopt this narrow way, as we discussed last week, that we are able to move toward the abundant life that we all in society crave. 
So Jesus comes onto the scene. He diagnoses our longings, first of all. Jesus diagnoses what we all are after and seeking. And he also directs our path of getting there. Jesus diagnoses what you and I long for. Wholeness, peace, harmony, justice, righteousness, flourishing. Ultimately, paradise. As well as directs and gives way to the path of getting there. We discussed last week that the most foundational element of our discipleship to Jesus is practice. It's the most foundational element to our discipleship to Jesus. If we're not practicing the teachings of Jesus, we're not active disciples of Jesus. And he has invited all of us to practice his teachings. It is the most foundational element of our discipleship or our apprenticeship or our followership of Jesus. Not just hearing but also doing, being with him, becoming like him, and doing what he did. To do this, though, we have to have a map. We have to have some sort of guide, a set of practices or rhythms that orient us and index us toward Jesus and the life he offers. Let's be honest, a lot of us have grown up in the church and We talk a lot about transformation, about change, but we don't know how to change. We don't know how to be transformed. We don't know what's next. We had one encounter where we felt the tinglys. And we're like, okay, now what? And our hope is to actually look back over the history of the church and to look at this ancient practice that orients us through disciplines into the life Jesus offers. Simply meandering through life, hoping to become like Jesus or hoping to experience wholeness and flourishing simply isn't enough, nor is it effective. If you're just going through life hoping that you're going to change, hoping that you're going to experience flourishing, it's not going to be effective. It's not going to work. However, all of us already have some sort of mental map or frame of reference that we subconsciously live our lives around. All of us in this room already have a rhythm of life, whether we know it or not. Most of us, though, are unintentional with it. We are, uh, it's involuntary and it's inadvertent. It's an unintentional rhythm of life that we have. The hope with these five rhythms, however, in this communal rhythm of life is to make them intentional, deliberate, and communal. Intentional, deliberate, and communal. Not just individual, but communal. We do these together. We practice the way of Jesus together. Jesus calls multiple disciples to be together. That's our hope with these five rhythms. In an age of chaos and confusion, it seems as though people are searching for order. People are searching for rhythms. People are searching for new sets of habits to hopefully move us into some sort of vision of flourishing. Something that moves us into the quote-unquote good life. As we looked last week at the new news column in the Atlantic called How to Build a Life, Ways to Move into Happiness. We are all searching for some sort of rhythm or practice that moves us into the good life. Atomic Habits by James Clear has been an Amazon bestseller for 138 straight weeks. More than any other book 
in the current top 10 on Amazon. You know what's fascinating, though? The book came out 152 weeks ago. In other words, the moment this book came out, it has been consistently at the top of the Amazon charts. Yesterday, I was at uh, Ed McKay's, which, does anybody love going to Ed McKay's and just walking around? Wonderful place to go. Spend some time looking at books or records or whatever you do. And um, I ran into two people there who both were talking about James Clear and Atomic Habits. I didn't know these people from Adam. I started looking at some books and, and started talking about some different New York Times bestsellers. And they're like, you know what? Atomic Habits is the best book I've ever read in my life. And I'm a self-help guru. Like, I love self-help stuff. That's what they said. And they're like, it's the best book ever. You got to read it. Another person on another aisle was talking about, yeah, I'm reading Atomic Habits right now by James Clear. Like, it's a cool thing to do. You know, I'm reading James Clear. It's a thing. This book has become very popular. Another one came out in 2018 by the uh, polarizing and controversial Canadian psychologist and political critic, Jordan Peterson. And the book is called 12 Rules for Life, an anecdote to what? Chaos. One of the most polarizing public intellectuals in the social sciences, from both the left and the right, wrote a book about rules in an age of anti-authoritarianism and antinomianism, which is essentially to say we are against legalism and social norms, And it was a bestseller and has been for three years. We crave habits. We want practices. We want new rhythms in the moment that we are currently living in. Another New York Times bestseller. Again, these are just secular books. David Brooks wrote this book, The Second Mountain, in 2019. This book is all about commitment and moving into meaning instead of just simply having freedom. Or simply graduating from college and saying, the world is your oyster. Okay, cool, but now what? Freedom to do what? When we don't know the direction we're going or what to do, it results in anxiety and fatigue and loneliness and discouragement. And David Brooks writes about it, and it's a number one, not just a New York Times bestseller, number one New York Times bestseller. Humanity is craving practices, rhythms, and habits. The problem is that our primary understanding of the good life is based on a place we arrive versus a direction that we move in. Just think about the nature of society. It's all about graduation, moving to the next stage, arriving at a destination. You go from kindergarten into officially you're an elementary school student, first grade. Then you go to middle school. Then you go to high school. Then you graduate, hopefully. (laughs) Then you go to college. You go and maybe you go to community college for a couple years. Then you go to four-year school. You graduate from UNCG or from A&T. You got your degree in social work or your degree in biology or your degree in business. And then you go get a job. And you're hoping to make at least $35,000 a year. (laughs) At least You get your job, and hopefully you get a promotion. Hopefully you meet someone. Hopefully you have a kid. Hopefully you then retire, have a 401K. Hopefully you have a white picket fence and a nice house. But what if that's not the linear progression of your life? 
And what happens when you get over that first mountain, quote unquote, of success? There's a second mountain that comes to us where we long for more than what's been provided for us by the culture. We look more in terms of a place to arrive versus a direction that we should move in, a state of being versus a final destination. Uh, Rhythms direct, they don't determine. Rhythms direct your life, they don't determine your life. Disciplines and practices help orient, they don't guarantee. This rhythm of life concept obviously comes from the life and teachings of Jesus, who was, by the way, not only Savior and King, which he was, but he was also a rabbi or a teacher. In fact, the majority of the time when he is referred by disciples or others in the gospel narrative, he is called master or teacher or rabbi. This rhythm of life concept comes from and was popularized by St. Benedict in the 6th century, 1,500 years ago, and his rule of life. The word rule comes from the Latin word regula, and it speaks to the idea of a trellis, like what vines grow on in a vineyard. It speaks to this idea of a trellis in a vineyard. But a better metaphor in my mind is like lanes on a highway. This idea of a rule or regula speaks, I think, more to the idea of lanes on a highway. The lanes help the constant flow of traffic move into the same direction. How is it that at 5 o'clock on West Wendover Avenue at the intersection of I-40, when traffic is stopped, we all get frustrated? Because there's no flow of traffic. We're not moving in a direction. The rule of life and this rhythm of life concept functions a bit like lanes on a highway. Again, we get back to this road analogy or metaphor, which we discussed last week from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus talks about the narrow road that leads to life. We get back to this idea of a highway or a road or a path or a mental map or a lifestyle. I love Pete Scazzaro's definition from emotionally healthy spirituality of what a rule of life is. In fact, this book is, we have a little curated bookstore up front, a couple shelves of some books we recommend. This book is one of those. It's out there. You can get it and read it. It's really fascinating. He says this. He says, a rule of life, very simply, is an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything we do. It provides guidelines to help us continually remember God as the source of our lives. That is what a rule of life is. That's what a rhythm of life is, and that's what we are after. We must be, in an age of chaos and confusion and disorder, we must be intentional about our formation. We must be strategic about our patterns and behaviors because... It is our rhythms and practices that shape our loves and longings. If you want to know what a person loves, look at their patterns. If you want to know what a person longs for, look at their practices, their disciplines, and their bank account. Look at how they spend their time. It shapes our loves and our longings. Again, here's the five, and we're going to move through these over the next few weeks. And over time, we will spend even more intentional time looking at each of these individually in different teaching series in the future. 
The five are praying, resting, learning, gathering, and contributing. All of these have an inward element. They have an outward element, and they have an upward element. So I'm not just trying to appeal to the introverts, and we're not just trying to appeal to the extroverts. This is holistic for us as the people of God, as a family. There's inward elements that some of you who are introverted are going to be like, yes, silence. My favorite song, silence. Some of you extroverts are like, I hate silence with every bit of what's inside of me. Let's contribute. Let's do something in the world. Let's gather. Let's spend time together. The reality is we have to grow in all these areas and figure out the ones in which we are the weakest in. The point, though, is not to try harder. The point is to train better. The point is not to try harder. The point is to train better. I read this verse last week for all of you, and Paul is writing to his apprentice, Timothy. He says, Have nothing to do with the godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, in other words, here's an alternative. Train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. I love Eugene Peterson in the message. He says, exercise daily in God. Now, some of us got our gym stories. Um, I have been trying to go to the gym with Cody Thompson. And listen, I'm the kind of person i got to have accountability. Like, I need someone who's going to be there at 730 who's like, hey, man, where are you? You're not here. We're trying to hold each other accountable, and it is paying off. It's paying off. We got to exercise daily, not just physically, but in God. He goes on to say, no spiritual flabbiness, please. I love that. (laughs) Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Like, I was triggered when I saw that word. (laughs) Like, let's not say flabby, okay? Like, this just feels weird. And especially when you're reading the Bible. Um, but the Greek for train is gymnazo. It's a verb. And it means to train or to discipline or to work out. It comes from the same root word for gymnasium. The same root word as gymnasium. If you want to be a basketball player, trying harder by playing as many pickup games as you possibly can, you're going to get tired but you're not going to get better. You're going to get tired and fatigued, but you're not going to get better. Training is adopting the lifestyle of a basketball player. Getting in the gym, quote unquote, is what coaches would say. You got to get in the gym. If you want to be a runner, trying harder is going out every day and trying to run a 5K. Every day. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to try to hit it today. 5K after it. That's just trying harder. But training better is adopting the necessary practices to become a runner. How you eat, how you work out, how you breathe, the shoes that you wear, and most importantly, incremental increase. Because you're wanting to become a runner, you don't just want to run. I want you to become a disciple of Jesus, a more effective disciple of Jesus. Not just trying harder at being a disciple of Jesus. Philosopher Dallas Willard says, to train means arranging our life around those practices that enable us to do what we cannot now do by direct effort. 
The point of training is to receive power. So we arrange our life around practices through which we get power. We got to train better, friends, not just try harder. This is why these practices seem relatively generic. Because they aren't meant to be one and done. But rather disciplines that you can grow and train into. Always seeking and asking the question, what is my next step on the journey? In regards to prayer or resting or learning or gathering or control, what's my next step? My, my charge to you today is not going to be get on your face, prostrate on the floor in travailing prayer for an hour and a half a day contending for awakening and revival in our nation. Some of you are like, I'm already overwhelmed by that. That's not the charge. The charge is to look at your current patterns, your current schedule, and figure out what needs to get taken out, probably, and how do you integrate these practices into your current rhythm of life that you have. And we all have one, like we already mentioned. So the question is always, what's my next step on the journey? Where am I? Okay, I already spend 10 minutes with the Lord every day. Okay, what about 20? Right? Some of you are like, oh, I read one verse in the morning, a devotional. You know, I do Jesus Calling. Sarah Young, that's my girl. Well, what if you, like, read a passage, get into the scriptures, go through a book of the Bible, do it with friends. What's my next step? And we're going to continue to pursue this over the next few weeks. Our first rhythm is prayer. That's what we're talking about today, it's prayer. But it first must be noted that Jesus prayed a lot. He prayed a lot. He constantly retreated to pray. But this was not foreign to first century Jews. Not at all. And by the way, did you know Jesus was actually very religious? For some reason, we pit relationship with God and religion against each other. Jesus would go, what are we doing? Religion is a devotion of worship. It's practices. It's devotion. And that's what we're moving into. The ultimate end is union with God. But religion and relationship are not at odds with one another. Jesus was a devout Jew. Okay? Sophia Fasua, who was a professor of mine at seminary, in her book, Jesus and Prayer, says this about Jesus and the Jewish culture in terms of prayer. It came as no surprise to the gospel writers that Jesus prayed often. Every aspect of Jewish life and culture is directed, there's a key word, directed toward God. For the Jews of Jesus' day, religious practice, including prayer, were not an option or an aspiration. They were an expectation. Either alone or in a group, Jews customarily said short prayers in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening, in addition to prayer at quote-unquote unscheduled times throughout the day. We're seeing the life of Jesus in first century culture. Morning, noon, and night fixed hour prayer. Go read Daniel in the Old Testament. He prays three times a day. He goes to the same window, prays three times a day. Here we see the integration of two things. We see the integration of habit and desire. The integration of practice and motivation. So before we consider the practice of prayer, we must first consider our appetite for God. 
Before we can even talk about the practice of prayer, we need to examine our current appetite for God and his presence. You need to do some self-evaluation, some self-examination of your appetite for God. John 7, verse 37, Jesus says this, On the last and greatest day of the festival, I love that he's like so climactic here, the last day Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. What is he saying here? If you are thirsty, come to me and I will provide for your thirst. But are you thirsty? You got ask your neighbor, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Look at the other person and say, I know you're thirsty. (laughs) You're parched, honey. You're parched. We have to examine our appetite. You have to ask that question of yourself. Am I thirsty for God? Am I thirsty for his presence? Am I parched? Am I hungry? What is my appetite for God and his presence? Our first prayer must be a new want, a new hunger, and a new thirst for God. That's your first prayer today. Holy Spirit, in this moment, In this room, would you give all of us a new hunger and a new thirst for you? Amen. It's as simple as that. Give me a new thirst. Give me a new hunger. Prayer begins from the posture of both want and need. It begins from both the posture of want and need. In fact, to pray assumes the posture of a beggar. Showing one's dependence upon God. Yet, prayer is much more than that. It's not just begging. It's way, way more than that. Prayer is entering into the presence of God to drink from the fountain of the Spirit. To be with God. To draw near to the one who calls us his own. No matter where you are in your journey of life, he looks at you and says, come to me. Draw near to me. Prayer is communion. It is time with God. It is conversation with Jesus. It's one of talking and it's listening. And we see that very clearly in our text that was read for this morning in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Notice that. She opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted, key word, by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. You like that? That's probably how she sounded, right? Hey, get get your girl. Get old girl in the kitchen with me, okay? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. Except he was probably quiet. Martha, Martha. Probably talked like Robbie. (laughs) You know? Like, you talk to Robbie, you're like... Can you just keep talking to me? Like, this brings so much peace. Martha, Martha. Josh Leroy is the same way. If you haven't met Josh, it's just like they exude tranquility. 
you know? I don't know what it is, but anyway. I guess you got to drive a Prius. That must be what it is. Martha, if it's me, Martha, Martha, you know? (laughs) You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are what? Needed. Or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary and Martha often get pitted against one another in this story. Mary versus Martha. This isn't, however, what Luke is trying to communicate. Martha is doing a lot for Jesus. Opening her home. And how many of you guys have friends over, like, recently? Like, it's a lot to open people up into your home. You got to clean, you got to vacuum, you got to get the iRobot out there to do his thing. You got a Windex, right? You got to get the crock pot going early in the morning. It takes a lot. And she's doing a lot. She's cleaning her house, cooking a meal, making it look nice. Got the, got the wood wicks going, the incense burning, I don't know. Probably smells great. She's doing a lot. The home probably looks like Jay and Aaron's home. Wonderfully decorated. Ready for hospitality. Come on in, Jesus. She's serving him. Martha's doing a good thing. She's just become distracted by the good thing. You know, you can open your home to Jesus and still be distracted while he is there. You can open your life to Jesus to come on in and still be distracted while he's in your life. Mary is simply doing the better thing. It's not about right and wrong here. It's about what's better. She's doing the better thing. So what is she doing? She is simply sitting at the Lord's feet listening. This is prayer. Sitting at the Lord's feet, being with him. Notice that Mary had a choice. Mary had a choice. You and I have to choose to be with God. It's not coming any other way. This also assumes you have alternatives. This assumes you could choose other things. And we do. But she specifically chooses to be with God. We have to choose to sit with him. There are other options. So it won't happen naturally. We must be intentional and choose. Choosing to pray when I might not have wanted to in my own journey has always resulted in a hunger for more. Sometimes I don't want to pray. Let's be honest. It's okay. Sometimes I don't don't want to sit. I want to be productive, you know? But every time I pressed into it, I've always wanted more because the more you're with him, the more you want him. Some of you don't want him because you ain't been with him. You got to be with him. Keep that in mind. It does seem, though, that human beings ache for what I would refer to as transcendent intimacy. We want a connection to that which is beyond ourselves. Something that is divine, something that is meta, something that is spiritual. But we also crave a closeness that can't be taken away. An intimacy that won't fail us. An attachment that lasts. We crave both transcendence and intimacy. And prayer is that space where the physical realm and the supernatural realm are bridged together where transcendence and intimacy meet. 
And it is faith or trust that moves us across the bridge. It moves us into the all-powerful, all-loving, all-good, all-present creator of the universe that looks at us and says, draw near to me and I will, not I might, I will draw near to you. And we have to trust that that is true. Tony Evans says that prayer is the God-given communication link between heaven and earth, time and eternity, the finite and the infinite. We crave transcendence, being a part of something bigger than ourselves, and we also long for intimacy, and prayer is able to make that happen. Here's the goal of prayer, very simple. The goal of prayer is to be with God. It's nothing wild. It's nothing crazy. The goal of prayer is to be with God. Sometimes we have like ulterior motives to be with God. And we're like, man, why is this not working? Just be with him. Sit at his feet. Listen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, which by the way, as we mentioned last week, is bookended with the idea of practice. Jesus says this. When, or says, when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father. Simple. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father. So when we practice prayer communally or individually as a rhythm, we need three things based on this teaching. And if we've got to practice it, we've got to do it. Three things. First thing, time. He says, when you pray. That's a call to time. He also says, close the door. In other words, spend time. Okay? First thing is is time. And again, start small, friends. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, 45, an hour, two hours, whatever. Start small. Time. The second thing is place. We need to find a place to be with God. For some of us, it's outside, it's in nature. Some of us, we have a nice plush seat in our home that we love we need a place because he says here go into your room where is your room not literally but like metaphorically where is your room with God you need to have a place the third thing is you got to have alignment the first question you have to ask in prayer is who am I talking to who am I talking to and he says here specifically close the door and pray to your father You've got to be in alignment with who you're talking to. I love the Tozer quote where he says that the most important thing about us is what we think of when we think of God. We need time, place, and alignment. Time, place, and alignment. Very simple. Set aside time. You need a place to go to intentionally. Not just on the couch, not with your computer in front of you. I'm going to pray now. Go to your room, close the door, and get in alignment with your Father. So, to close, here's a few types of prayer for us. A few types of actual practices. And keep in mind, as a community, we will press more into prayer over the next few months, years, and really, till the future comes and we're waiting on the day of the Lord. Here's a few different types of prayer. Some of you are going to be like, ooh, that one really jumps out at me. Some of you are like, "Uh uh-uh, not me. All right? So bear with me. Keep in mind. First type of prayer is silence. Silence and solitude. All the Um, contemplatives in the room. Yes, I love this. Again, silence, sitting, 
It's, you know, meditation's hot right now. Mindfulness. It's like, honey, we've been doing this for two millennia, okay? It's nothing new for the people of God. But here's the difference. We're not just emptying ourselves. We're getting filled back up. Okay? Press into boredom. Okay? Some of you are like, I can't pray, I get bored. Okay, so what? Press five more minutes in. Boredom exists because we're so hurried and busy and scattered. Okay? Press into the boredom. Boredom's not a bad thing. Normalize it. Press into the silence. It's the ancient psalm. Be still and know that I am God. Sit in silence. Ruth Haley Barton says we are starved for quiet. To hear the sound of sheer silence, that is the presence of God himself. He doesn't always come in a loud bang. Sometimes he comes in a gentle whisper. But you've got to be able to lower the noise of your world to be able to hear the voice of God. Silence. The second thing is conversing. This is just casual conversation throughout the day. Just talking with God in the car, driving, going around. Hey, Jesus, what's up? Hey, Holy Spirit, how are you? You know, it's just it's conversing. It's talking to a friend. It's talking to someone you're close with, okay? It's conversing. It's basic dialogue. The third one is contending. This is praying for revival, praying for renewal, praying for justice. This has a prophetic leaning. This is fighting in prayer, okay? You know, we have power and authority in God. We have been given a deposit of authority, okay? This is the older women in the Hebrides that for three years were praying for revival to come to this remote part of, uh, of this island. And sure enough, a couple years go by and revival breaks out. They were fighting for renewal, fighting for awakening, fighting for prayer. John Tyson says the intensity of our prayers must match the intensity of our moment. We live in an intense moment. We got to have intense prayers sometimes. We got to fight. We got to contend. We got to pray. Tony Evans, kingdom prayer is the established mechanism to advance God's kingdom agenda on earth by accessing his authority in heaven and drawing it down. In this way, his rule is advanced in history. Love that. Habakkuk 3.2 is the ultimate kind of contending, praying for renewal, praying for revival prayer. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In other words, do it again, God. Do it again. Bring revival. Bring awakening. The next one's asking. Ask. Petition. James 4.2 says, you have not because you ask not. You must have your heart in alignment with his. Prayers often aren't answered because our motivations are wrong. We have to pray that our hearts are in alignment. The next one is praise, honor, worship. And this will form you more than you actually know. In fact, worship transforms the worshiper. Okay? Worship transforms the worshiper. Praise, sing, turn on some music, sing at the top of your lungs, all right? The next one and the final one is promise. Pray the promises of God. In other words, you said you'd pour out your spirit on dry ground. When are you going to do it? Pray the promises of God. And you can pray honest prayers when you're in covenant community with God. You said you'd do it, bro. Come on. Five types of prayers. And I want you to be able to ask yourself, where do I find a leaning? Is it silence? Is it just kind of dialoguing or conversing? Is it contending? Is it asking? Is it praise? Is it promise? These are a few different practices for us to be able to engage in terms of prayer.
Um, at Niagara Falls in upstate New York, there are three ways you can kind of experience this wonderful waterfall. You can stay at the hotel that is right at Niagara Falls. I think it's a Hilton, I believe. You can stay there and get you a nice plush bed, okay? King-size bed. It's nice. Air conditioning. Hello. Okay? Heat in New York, right? And you can look out the window at this wonderful, majestic piece of creation. The second view you could have is in the actual park at the top. You can go get a souvenir, go get a hot dog while you're out there, just kind of getting splashed a little bit by the, the, the water. Okay, you can get a little closer. But the third view is from the boat, where you got to put a raincoat on, a rain jacket, and get in the boat and get drenched by the water of Niagara Falls. The call of prayer is to go from the hotel room to the park to in the boat with the presence of God. He wants to drench you with his presence, but you got to ask yourself, am I thirsty? Am I hungry? Where are you in terms of these views? Are you kind of in the hotel room where it's plush and it's comfortable? You can see the beauty, but you can't fully experience the beauty. Or are you at the park, kind of enjoying your, your deal with your family, your friends, and whatever? And the falls are there, but you kind of got your own thing going on over here. Or are you like, you know what, God? I want to get in the boat. I want to put a raincoat on and get drenched by the Spirit of God. My prayer is that we become a hungry people. I want to be around people who want the same thing, who want revival, who want the manifest presence of God to touch earth to see healing, to see prophecy, to see people come alive in the spirit, to practice the way, to live the contemplative life, but also to believe in the power and authority of God that's been deposited into each one of us as members of one family. That is my hope and my desire for us as a community, but we got to begin to practice. We got to show up. The one thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them is what? How do I pray? 